All right, thank you, Jess and Aisha. It is so great to be together. Thanks for tuning in to the broadcast as we launch this brand new series, Soul Fest, where each week we're gonna explore a song that is good for the soul, that can nourish and give us some encouragement. And uh, I hope that throughout this series, you will download each song each week, listen to it throughout the week. And as we kind of kick off this series, uh, let me welcome you. My name is Ryan and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. It's great to have you uh, tuning in. And uh, we're, every series we launch, we start with what we call an anchor verse. And it's just a, a, a verse from scripture that kind of settles us, it holds us, right? It's what everything flows out of. And so this series, as we explore songs, we're really looking at what does it mean to kind of live in the unfailing love of God, to rejoice in that, because there is a God who exists, who created us, who is teeming through this world, uh, bringing and, and restoring all things. And this God cares about each of us individually. It's pretty crazy, pretty amazing. It cares about the condition of our souls, right? And wants our souls to be uh, filled with joy, wants our souls to be filled with wholeness, wants to flow out of us into this world. Uh, Psalm 31.7, our anchor verse says, I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love. You know, that song that the band sang that hopefully you were singing along. I was singing along here at Taft Avenue, uh, the goodness of God. Hopefully you rejoice in that goodness, which is God's unfailing love. Siri's telling me she didn't understand what I was saying. Hopefully you can though, right? Uh, this unfailing love for you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul that the God of the universe is concerned and cares about our souls, that the God of the universe sees our trouble, the God of the universe knows us. That is such incredible news that the God of the universe knows you. The God of the universe wants your soul to rejoice and be glad in God's unfailing love. As we kind of jump in, we're gonna talk about this song called Belovedness that just came out by uh, Sarah Kroger. Now I've gotta be honest with you, Kroger, Kroger, I don't know who this person is. Uh, I'd never heard of them, but I heard the song a few weeks ago, it just came out. And I thought this is a great song with some powerful lyrics for us. You know, the reality is we all look at ourselves a certain way. We have an internal understanding of who we are. We think of ourselves in certain terms and we imagine the way other people think about us as well. I don't know about you, but I walk into a room and I kind of immediately size myself up uh, with other people. I think about what are people thinking about me? And generally those voices inside of my head uh, are projected onto the people around me and they're based upon how I see myself. So let me ask you this question, how do you see yourself? How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as smart? Do you think of yourself as not so smart? Do you think of yourself as, uh, as uh, athletic? Do you think of yourself as not very athletic? Do you think of yourself as friendly or unfriendly, introvert, extrovert? How do you think of yourselves? Well, I think that we all uh, think about ourselves in pretty uh, stark terms most of the time, that we live in kind of a dualistic understanding of ourselves. And this is what I mean. I think a lot of times we see ourselves as either winners or losers, right? We look at our lives, we look at uh, what we have accomplished and we say, man, I'm a winner or else we'll kind of start listening to a voice inside of our head that says, boy, I'm such a loser. Right? And that's the way we think about ourselves. Another, another uh, way we often think of ourselves and categorize ourselves is around our like, behavior, our ethics, our morality, right? And we'll say, oh, I'm a sinner or I'm a saint. 
right? There's, there's nothing good in me or I am just like super goody two-shoes, right? But we think of ourselves in those terms that like I've either done a lot of bad stuff in my life and I'm not really sure that I belong in any faith community. I'm not sure that God loves me. Or we see ourselves as, man, I haven't made too many mistakes. I'm a pretty good person. I think of myself as a saint. I think one of the most tragic ways in which we categorize ourselves is with this word worthy. That oftentimes we see ourselves in this, these two categories of worthy and unworthy. You know, and, and we can say to ourselves, well, this way of seeing us, that's really about, happens in junior high, right? We live in those categories. But you know, most of us don't see ourselves as we are right now. We, we go back to that voice. We go back to that way of understanding. You know, I'm 43 years old and I still think that I'm 15 most of the time, right? I still think that I can, you know, function and get the same amount of sleep. Like I just don't picture myself as a 43 year old man, right? Uh, and, and so we all hear those voices and those voices come to us from pretty powerful systems that we all have, right? We all have these systems that work in our lives and systems are very powerful. They're very influential in our lives. And the way we see ourselves comes to us through these three systems. The first system is our family system, how we grew up, the environment with which we grew up, the personality traits and types of our parent or parents, or the people who raised us could have been grandparents or an aunt or an uncle, right? So we develop an identity. We develop a way of seeing ourselves through our families, right? Did we have parents who expressed to us unconditional love? They expressed to us value and worth. We are highly likely to understand ourselves that way. If we grew up in an environment that was competitive, right? That we were being compared to our siblings all the time, then we will probably compare ourselves because that's a system that we would encounter over and over again. Right? Our religious systems, if you grew up in a spiritual system, right? a way in which you thought about and held the world together, the universe together, right? the creator, God, uh, the great spirit, whichever language you might have grown up with, that religious system at work in our lives has a lot to do with the way we see ourselves. What part do I have in the universe? Does the uni- is the universe hostile? Is the universe gracious? Does God exist? Does God not exist? Is God uh, deciding who's in and who's out based upon behavior? Right? And so those systems are very powerful because they influence the way in which we, we see ourselves in relationship to one another and God. And then we have a culture. We all grow up in a certain culture. Perhaps uh, some cultures we grew up in are honor-shame-based cultures. Perhaps our culture, culture you grow in is kind of an island culture. Things are laid back. But that culture will oftentimes uh, speak to us and will develop a little bit of a voice. Like, what is my identity? Who am I? How do we see ourselves? Now, these powerful systems create a, a sense of identity for us. And here's, here's the real challenge. Here's the real tension. That at the end of the day, if we come to a space and, and we live in, in, a, in a world where we believe that there is a creator, we believe that there is a God, we'll oftentimes take the way we see ourselves and we'll impose that into the, the creator. We'll impose that onto God. And so if we see ourselves as a sinner, that's the way God sees us. If we see ourselves as a saint, that's the way God sees us. If I'm a winner, then God sees me that way. And so we will oftentimes believe that God sees us just the way we see ourselves. Now, the problem with this is most of the people that I have the privilege to get to know, to encounter, to do ministry alongside of, to sit and hear and talk with, have a pretty poor understanding of their identity. 
that we just can't believe that we are loved. We just can't believe that we can belong. We just can't believe that. We look at our lives and we focus on our mistakes. We focus on the things that we, the, the moments where we feel like we haven't lived up to ourselves. And so if this negative understanding of ourselves then gets imposed on God, we stay distant. And we can develop a very destructive understanding of the way in which God holds the world, the way in which God holds you and holds me. And so our song this week helps us set down some of these negative self images, helps us set down the things that we've owned about ourselves that are you know, sometimes true, the mistakes that we've made, we own those, but this song kind of teaches us and calls us to something different. And while we're gonna look at this song, I also think that scripture offers us some wisdom on this understanding of how we should think about ourselves, how fundamentally we should understand who we are, especially in relationship to God, to the creator, right? To love, to that which holds and sustains the universe that is revealed in the person of Jesus, right? One of the, the most powerful metaphors, and it persists through all of scripture, right? And so when we read scripture, by the way, we look at the whole of it. Um, we don't just find one little verse somewhere and create a rule for life that we're supposed to follow. But the way in which I read and understand the sacred uh, scriptures is that they're inspired and given to us by God and they give us the struggle. <laughs> they give us the struggle of understanding who we are and understanding God and understanding the universe. Right, and, and so we look and we can read throughout scripture and there's this theme that we see all throughout the literature in it. And this theme is this wonderful metaphor that is often used uh, that basically sees God as the lover and humans or actually all of creation as God's beloved, right? So there's this language of lover and beloved, that God is the lover, that we as human beings, God's creation, even all of creation is beloved by God. In fact, there's actually a book in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible called Song of Songs. And this whole book is dedicated to erotic poetry. As I said that, that is what this book, it is poems between a lover and a beloved, a, 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 a husband who is betrothed, they're engaged to a woman, a man and a woman, and it's love poems back and forth. And it gets really racy. It gets, I mean, I, I encourage you to read it this week. I encourage you to read it more times, read it with uh, your partner. You'll love this, right? Uh, and, and, and it is just this constant back and forth about love that is so powerful that we're drawn to someone, love that is so powerful that we give everything that we can describe it and, and taste it and feel it. This whole book, uh, A Song of Songs. And in chapter two, verse 10 of Song of Songs, this wonderful poem, there's this line that says, it's so beautiful. It says, my lover said to me, rise up, my darling, come away with me, my fair one. Now, Undoubtedly, I believe that Song of Songs teaches us that God cares about our bodies, that God wants us to enjoy one another, that God wants us to love one another, that God created sexuality and intimacy and it's powerful and it's given to us. And there's also another level of reading the Song of Songs and that is that this understanding of God as the bridegroom, God as the groom searching for the bride. I wonder how much of, how many of us have ever thought about God saying, rise up my darling, come away with me, my fair one, come away with me. I can remember a few years ago, well, 
more than a few now, I guess. Everything was a few years ago, but it was quite more than a few. Um, there was this song that had come out. I don't even know who it was from, but, but it was a worship song. And, and it said, come away with me, my beloved. I wanna be near you, right? And how often do we sing? How often do we think about God actually saying, come away with me, come and experience me. As much as you may be a Bible person, you may be a church person, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, right? Whatever, whatever words you use there, you may have this understanding of God, right? But do we understand the depth of that intimacy and that love that is so powerful, that draws us in, that, that, that just compels us to run after, right? And, and the whole of Song of Songs is this amazing dance back and forth, right? Uh, the lover and the beloved together, and then they're apart. Then they're searching for one another, right? As I was uh, preparing for this talk this week, I was out walking one day. And I looked and I saw a father and a little girl and, and the little girl was running away from her father and she was giggling and laughing and they were playing this game of tag and she was running from the father and the father was running after her and there was this joy that was there. There was so much excitement in the heart of this little girl because her dad was chasing after her. Right? This image, this language, that's really what's happening in the Song of Songs. It reveals love as this game of tag, this game of hide and seek, of being pursued by a lover and then pursuing back by the beloved. And we see this great metaphor in scripture that this is the way in which God is often revealed to uh, God's people, Israel, and then through through Jesus and then into some of the early church leaders the same way. In fact, Isaiah, the prophet says, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Just wonder if this is language that makes much sense to us in our kind of power driven, hierarchy, ladder, corporate Western way of thinking to just be to just be that God rejoices over you like a bridegroom over the bride. Do we think of God that way? It was kind of weird, right? It's like, hold on, I don't know if I like that. I, that's just so strange to think about. God rejoicing over me as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, this language. And this language persists all throughout the scriptures. One of the most beautiful passages of scripture that gives us an insight into this powerful way in which God wants us to understand ourselves and the way in which we ought to understand who we are in relationship to God is found in a letter called Ephesians. If you're new to Bible study or new to this thing of faith, Ephesians is a letter that we have from a guy named Paul uh, who started a faith community in a town called Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor. And he started this church and he, he then left and started others, but he would write letters to these communities to check in on them, to encourage them. He would receive letters from them. And we have this letter and we call it Ephesians. And uh, in, in Ephesians chapter three, uh, verse 14 through 21, Paul is kind of summing up all the things that God has done in his life. He's looking back and seeing God at work and seeing how God has called him to this incredible task of taking this good news to the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles were just uh, people who weren't Jews, right? The, this universal love of God, this was Paul's task and his mission. And Paul was crazy enough to believe that it would change the world. 
crazy enough to believe that these little communities like in Ephesus that couldn't have been any more than 25, 30, 35 people, that this, this would change the world. And here we are. Right here we are 2000 years later and this universal love that first was proclaimed and seen in Jesus, experienced by Paul and taken out to the world, we're all benefiting from. And so Paul is talking about all of this. And in in verse 14, he says, when I think of all this, when I think about all that God has done, all how God has used me, what God is doing in my life, God's love for me, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. He says, I pray to this God that I understand as a good parent who's created everything just as my parents created me, that imagery, right? God created and gave birth to this whole world, everything, everything. I love what Paul, I love that Paul just thinks about God's personal engagement in his life. That there's a personal nature to this God that Paul speaks of. Right, Paul doesn't speak of God as some far off, distant entity being thing concept, but there is a personal nature. And he's, he thinks about that. He looks at his life and he says, look at all that God has done in my life. He says, when I think about it, I wonder how often we just sit and we think about God's personal engagement in my life. Or do we sit and think about, you know, God in scripture? Do we sit and think about, we have to go to church, <laughs> Right, what am I supposed to do? Should I not do this? Should I say this? Did, was I wrong in that? Was I a bad boy, a bad girl? Do it. But do we ever just sit and think about that? And so Paul thinks about all that God is and God has done, all of God's love, and it forces him into a relationship. When he says, I fall to my knees and pray, it forces him into communion with God. And then he talks with God and he prays that out of God's glorious, unlimited resources, that God would empower the Ephesians with an inner strength through the spirit, that they would be empowered with a strength. And we're gonna get to what I believe that strength is, but that, that, that Paul says, I want you to have the same strength that I have. I want you to understand what motivates me, what makes me tick, right? Paul in another space says, follow me as I follow Christ. And Paul's praying that, that, that the Ephesians would have the same exact inner power, right? within them through God's spirit, that there would be a revelation. And in doing so, this power, right? Would Christ would make his home in your heart as you trust him, right? So as we trust in this reality of God, as we trust that God is personal, as we trust God with the decisions of our lives, that we would, we would find Christ making a home in our hearts, right? Making a home in, in the place in which we make all of our decisions. And that our roots would then grow down into what I believe Paul's getting at is the strength is God's love. That it's God's love that's the strength. And that's where our roots would grow down. Now, here's the truth of it. Paul wanted the Ephesians to be rooted in love. The truth is most of us in our churches and our experiences, we want people to be rooted in right doctrine. (laughs) We want people to be rooted in church attendance. We want people to be rooted in their giving record. We want people to be rooted in their volunteering. We want people to be rooted in how much time, talent, treasure that you're giving to your local church. But that's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't say, may you be rooted in the law. May you be rooted in your community in Ephesus. No, he says, may you be rooted in love because the love is that strength. Now, not just love that you give, but it's the love we receive. It's the way in which we understand ourselves as lovable. And as we do that, as we root ourselves in God's love, this amazing reality that we are the beloved, that, 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 that God is indeed the lover of our souls, 
that we would have the power, right? That we would begin as we're rooted in love, as Christ makes uh, his home in our heart, the eternal Christ that was indwelling creation, manifest in the beginning, this, this divine uh, being of Christ was in all things, creating all things, would make its home in our hearts so that we would have the power to understand. Now, this is crazy, right? What do we need divine power to understand? The law? Do we need divine power to understand what's right and wrong? Do we need the divine power to understand the morality that gets us into heaven? Do we need to understand? No, what is it? You have to have divine power that's rooted in love so that all of God's people would be able to know how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of God is. Gosh, as we root ourselves in an understanding of our belovedness, we will begin to understand this unfathomable mystery about how wide and how long and how high and how deep the love of God is. That we would then experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Isn't that crazy? Some of us have become so comfortable with the idea of this phrase, God loves you. <laughs> we sang it, Jesus loves me, this I know that it no longer destroys our lives. It no longer grounds us. It no longer empowers us. It's just kind of this thing we say. It's not changing or transforming us. It's not calling us into greater sacrifice to, to experience this love in other people's lives. But it's in that love, it's in that rootedness that we can begin to fathom how wide and how deep and how long, and that we would experience the love of Christ. I love that word, experience it. Even though it's too great to understand fully. In other words, you can read about it all you want, but Paul's saying you have to experience it until you experience it. You'll never get it. And you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. It's only in an understanding and a deep-seated, rooted reality of your belovedness that you can come to a fullness of life and power in God. We have messed it up. <laughs> We have thought that the fullness and power and life of God comes from take the membership class, make the right commitments, say, say just the right words, get baptized just the right way, take communion just the right time, believe this about uh, atonement, believe this about resurrection. It's believe, but, but, but Paul is saying you have to experience this love and that will make you complete in the fullness of life and power that comes from God. The fullness of life that Jesus said, I've come to give you, but it only comes through an experience that is an amazing gift from the creator of the universe. And so I love that Paul knew that understanding divine love required a divine revelation. That, that there is no book that you can read. <laughs> there is no evidence that demands a verdict. There is only the encounter that saves. There is only the encounter that transforms. We wanna talk about things like conversion. The only thing that converts us is experience. Think about your own life. You fell in love with that boy, that girl. You were converted by that love. You were no longer allowed to be alone. You were no longer allowed to just see yourself uh, through your own eyes, but you were converted by the love that you experienced that transformed and shaped you and your life and your decisions. And that is a revelation that only comes through experience. You see, there is a knowing that only comes from experience. And as a person who has spent a lot of money and is still paying for knowledge that comes from books, <laughs> still paying the loan off from graduate school, 
I've come to this deep belief that that's wonderful and there are things that we can begin to understand, but deep, true faith, knowing the most important things in life, they only come through, through a knowledge that is gained through experience. That mystery begins to be understood through experience. God is understood through experience. This great mystery, and we use this word, you'll hear me use this word all the time. Mystery is not something that is unknowable, but what is it? I've said it over and over again, but mystery is something that is infinitely knowable, that we can just begin to fully understand the love of God. Why? Because it's a mystery. Because we can't fathom it. We can't fathom the kind of love that God has for us. And so Paul wraps up and he says, now all glory to God. In other words, it's all God, <laughs> right? This great power, this great love is because of God. It's one way. It's completely one way. It is unfailing. It's never gonna stop. It's never gonna end. There's never gonna be a shortage of it. We're never gonna be able to do anything to separate ourselves from it. So all glory goes to God who's able through his mighty power at work within us. Now just hang on to that phrase, his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. So God can do more than we could ever imagine when his power is at work within us, right? This mighty power. So what is this mighty power? I'm so glad you asked that question because that's the point. <laughs> Here's what I believe the mighty power at work in us is. And I, and I believe it's because of what Paul has simply laid out in his letter to the Ephesians. It's this great theme in scripture of belovedness. It's that the mighty power at work with this, within us is the personal experience of belovedness when you personally experience that you are the beloved child of God, when that mighty power is at work within you, you are unstoppable. There is no weapon that can be formed against you. You are unstoppable. There's nothing that can stop you. There's nothing that can derail you. There's no sin that can separate you. When you get a hold of this truth that Jesus comes and reveals this incredible goodness that you are the beloved of God, we just don't dare to believe it because we, we don't ever experience it. As much as I love my wife and she loves me, our, the beloved nature of that relationship, there still are things that separate me from her. That she's, we just can't get this. It's just too amazing. It's just too mind-blowing. But it is what produces the power and the strength and the stability for us to navigate this life with such incredible authority. It's why Jesus taught as one who had authority because he, know, he knew that he was the beloved son of God. And Jesus came to say, you're the beloved daughter of God. You're the beloved son of God, just like I am. And it's when we own that, that's where the power of God works through us. And we see things that we could never imagine. We see ourselves being able to handle experiences that we never thought we could. It's in that moment that we start to love this big game of tag with God. So I want you to hold that image for a second, right? Hold that image of playing tag with God. Remember I, that I encountered that father and that little girl and they're playing tag and they're chasing one another back and forth. The exhilaration when you would get caught by your father, the exhilaration when that one that you loved that was pursuing you would catch you and pick you up and you would laugh and giggle and it would be the most incredible moment. That is what it means to be the beloved of God, that in this life you are being pursued by God, that you are pursuing God. And there are these moments where there's an embrace at the cellular level, as I like to say. It's that game of tag. And you know what? Sometimes we run away and we don't even know we're running away, but our souls can find such rest in knowing that God is pursuing us, giggling, laughing, saying, where do you think you're going? You can't get away from my love. 
And so if we start to get a hold of this, how does this affect our tomorrow, right? How does this affect uh, our everyday normal lives? Well, first I wanna encourage you that in your everyday normal life, this starts by just giving yourself permission to be loved. You have to say yes. You have to say yes to this love. You have to say, I'm worth it. You have to say somehow in the great mystery of the universe, in the great mystery of creation, I am the beloved. I have to receive and accept that love. So give yourself permission to be the beloved of God. And this is one of the most difficult things that you will ever do in your life because it's just so hard to imagine that you could be loved naked, that you could be loved with all your failures, exposed to God completely, but know that you are loved absolutely. And so give yourself permission to be loved. And as you start to do that, one great way to do this is to experience the beloved nature, to experience your belovedness in worship. Now, when I use the word worship here, I mean it in the specific way in which we use it as song and singing and poetry, right? We sing oftentimes when we gather the song that uh, the band uh, performed for us and that maybe you sang along the goodness of God, that you've experienced it. It's, it's a love song. It's a dance with God as the beloved, and so I wanna encourage you to put worship music as a part of your life, this singing about God's love to remind yourself, to let the spirit of God remind you of your belovedness because it is so easy to forget. It is so easy to let the voices and the way in which we see ourselves uh, overwhelm this great truth that exists outside of anything we've ever done, that I am the beloved of God, not because of anything I've ever done, not because of anything I could ever do, but because God created and God loves what God creates. And that's you and that's me. And as, this, as we live into this worship and as we live into giving ourselves daily permission to be the beloved, I am the beloved of God. I own my belovedness. You can start to function from the truth of your belovedness, not from the lie of the categories of this world, of worthy and unworthy, of sinner and saint, of winner and loser. Those are categories of this world. And let me just tell you something right now. We'll get this out of the way. You are a loser. I'm a loser. Some days I am. I'm a winner some days. You're a winner some days. Guess what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner, but I'm also a saint, right? I'm, I'm not worthy, but I'm so worthy. You're not worthy, but you're so worthy. Those categories that we use and we think of in this world have absolutely nothing to do with the nature of God's love for us, the belovedness of who we are, the fullness and the wholeness that comes from that. Richard Rohr, one of my favorite uh, spiritual teachers uh, in his book, The Art of Letting Go, uh, he, he wrote something I think is just so good for us in this, in this uh, lesson about being the beloved of God. And I'm gonna do what you should never do. I'm gonna read uh, a very long portion of this. So uh, hang in with me, but it's so good. It's so right on with what has to happen. What we have to just con convince ourselves, let our mind be renewed every day in this truth. This is what he says. He says, it is good to remember that a part of you has always loved God. Isn't that great? A part of you has always loved God. There's a part of you that has always said yes. There's a part of you that is love itself. And that is what we must fall into. It is already there. 
That's that image of God. That's the way you're created. It all, God always says yes to God, the, right? The image of God, the eternal Christ that is flowing through everything is always calling to God. That spirit calls to spirit, right? That God loves God. So there's a part of you that, that is always saying yes to God. And then he, and he writes, he says, once you move your identity to that level of deep inner contentment, you will realize that you are drawing upon a life that is much larger than your own and from a deeper abundance. And once you learn this, why would you ever again settle for scarcity in your life? I'm not enough. This isn't enough. I don't have enough. I'm a loser. I'm a sinner. I'm not worthy. Once you understand that that part of you has always said yes to God, that that part of you is the beloved, that that's who you are, why would you ever go back? He says, I'm afraid this is the way culture trains you to think. It's a kind of learned helplessness. The gospel message is just the opposite, inherent power. When you know that you are the daughter of God, when you know that you are the son of God, there is inherent power in that. Thomas Merton said that the way we have structured our lives, we spend our whole life climbing up the ladder of supposed success. I want to be a winner, right? And when we get to the top of that ladder, we look around and we realize, uh-oh, that ladder is leaning against the wrong wall and there's nothing at the top anyway. And so to get back to the place of inherent abundance, you have to let go of all the false agendas, the unreal goals and passing self images. All those things that we think can turn us into a winner so that we can be loved. They can turn us into a saint so we can be loved. It's all about letting go of that stuff. The spiritual life is more about unlearning than learning because the deepest part of you already knows and already enjoys. I love that. We have to unlearn things that come into us because the deepest part of us has already said yes. The deepest part of us knows that we are loved. The deepest part of us says yes to God. And in this, we are creating wholeness, right? I always like to ask the question, why does it matter? Why you just sat and listened to this, you know, extremely boring conversation, right? No, you just sat and listened to this talk, right? For 31 minutes and 49, 50 seconds, 51 seconds, 52 seconds. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because I believe the, the heartbeat of the father that courses through us, the point of it is that we would be peacemakers in this world. And by peacemakers, I mean people who purvey wholeness, that we create wholeness around us, that we look for the fracturing in our world and we say, let's bind it up. Let's bind up the brokenhearted. Let's create wholeness. So how does this create wholeness? Well, here's the thing. When you and I finally and truly believe that we are God's beloved, when we own our belovedness, we will experience unimaginable strength and stability in the pursuit of peace. When we feel uh, that the world is against the, the peacemaking efforts, when we feel like that, that there's just too much darkness, when we feel the weight of our intentions being uh, questioned, we'll have an inner strength and stability because we know that we are the beloved child of God and it's time to own that. And so what is it that God is inviting you into? You just invested 33 minutes of your life. Why? I hope you didn't waste your time. So ask that question, God, what are you inviting me into? What are you inviting me into? Perhaps God is inviting you to dare to believe, to absolutely dare to believe that you are God's beloved. 
Perhaps God's inviting you to read the Song of Songs this week and imagine yourself in that story with the Creator, pursuing you, you pursuing this Creator, this love that draws us in. And I wanna encourage you, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, to download this song, Belovedness by Sarah Kroger. The song that the band performed, you're gonna hear in just a second. Download this song and let it feed your soul this entire week. Because it is time that we start to own our belovedness. Check it out. 